<laughs> That's me, surfing on a beach in Los Angeles County, conquering my fear of the ocean. The water is so powerful and it's unbelievable. Like it's just a natural force that has so much power. This is like the happiest I've been in a really long time. This is really great. <laughs> so great. <laughs> I'm hanging out with a group called Color the Water. It's a surf collective that offers surfboards, wetsuits, lessons, and most importantly, a supportive community for surfers of color. So there's Brianna, Hyanna, Kareem, Razizi, Essence, T Essence, Camila, Carell, Riley, Gavin, Mike. Oh, here she comes. <laughs> it just makes you realize that it's crazy you've never seen black people just loving the ocean in this way at these beaches in California, just mastering the waves and it's like an alternate universe. It's really beautiful. Razizi Ishakara learned how to surf right here on community days like this. When did you learn how to swim? Two years ago. I took a swim class because I was tired of being a stereotype. My mom grew up in Mississippi during segregation, so she couldn't go to certain pools. Nobody I knew knew how to swim, and I just took it for, oh, black people can't swim. Enjoying a body of water is such an essential human experience a way to connect to the natural world. But for Black Americans, that basic privilege has long been denied us. During slavery, plantation owners viewed swimming as a way enslaved people might escape. Therefore, it was often prohibited. When the U.S. had grand public pools, they were often for whites only. During the era of integration, Many towns chose to drain their public pools rather than share them with people of color. Today, on this beach, there are people trying to undo that legacy of exclusion, of not sharing the pool. Well, how does it feel to have your girls on the waves? You know, it feels right, because what we try to explain to them is that there are no spaces and places that aren't for them just like the joy of seeing other people of color out here doing it, you know what I mean? Like, it's infectious, you know? The folks at the beach told me that days like this are an antidote for what they experience elsewhere, a general disdain in white surfing spots. So I was surfing in Manhattan Beach one day, and there was a wave that was coming. This is David Milana, a first-generation Filipino-American and co-founder of Color the Water. He told me about an incident he faced at another beach in L.A. County, Manhattan Beach. David was in the water about to go for a wave. And someone else was going for the wave, but I was kind of far away from them. In surfing culture, whoever's on a wave first has right of way. I knew that this person wasn't going to make the wave, so I went. And he comes up to me and he says, show some respect. And I say, you weren't going to make the section anyway. You show some respect. And then he says, you didn't walk here. You had to drive here. 
You don't live here. Show some respect. David didn't walk to the surf spot. Not very many people like David and his crew can walk to catch the surf in Manhattan Beach, where the houses sell for millions of dollars. There is a big presence of what's called localism in surfing, where people who live at or nearby the beach feel like an animosity towards people that have to come from further, or people who are beginners. There's this whole culture of chastisement and ridicule of people who may put on their wetsuit wrong or carry their boards on their cars, just trying to figure it out. And of course, that affects beginners, and of course, most people of color are beginners. This racial divide on the water has a history here in the South Bay of Los Angeles. The oceanfront community in Manhattan Beach is about 90% white. And that's not by accident. Here is true tranquility, a perfect haven of unchanging calm. Among the chief attractions of the Southern California picture is its many miles of beaches where you can be as athletic as you choose or just loll around and build up a beautiful tan. Over 100 years ago, one of the founding families of Manhattan Beach was a successful Black couple, Charles and Willa Bruce. They were entrepreneurs and trailblazers because they bought beachfront property here in 1912. They built a resort that became a paradise for Black beachgoers until the city decided to eliminate, quote, the Negro problem. In 1924, Manhattan Beach seized the Bruce's land under the pretense of building a park. A few years later, Charles and Willa left town. The promise of Black beach culture in Southern California left with them. If the Bruce's had been allowed to stay, everything would be different. If the Bruce family had that inroad onto the beach and into the water for a hundred years, that's a couple of generations of developing black surf culture. This area, Manhattan Beach, LA, is like the epicenter of surf culture, and it could have reverberated around the world. Now, almost a century after the Bruce's land was taken, regular people, politicians, and activists in Manhattan Beach have come together to correct a historic wrong. This is the story of something people said would never happen how a multiracial group of people came together to win the first known case of land reparations for a Black family in the United States. But if you think you know about the incredible victory at Bruce's Beach, you only know half the story. From Higher Ground and Futuro Studios, I'm your host, Heather McGee. And this is The Sum of Us, a podcast documenting my journey around the United States in search of hope and solidarity. To understand Manhattan Beach, you need to hear this story from someone who grew up here. For me, growing up in Manhattan Beach was a very beautiful experience for the most part. This is Ronald Clinton. He's 22 years old. I, I think I was the only Black guy my age growing up. His mom's an aerospace technician and his dad's a pharmacist. It's interesting because I'd say for the first 15 years of my life, I kind of had a raceless view of, I didn't really think actively about the fact that I was Black. 
I think the main thing that catalyzed my transition to owning my blackness and really thinking about it a lot more was when my house was firebombed. Say that again? My house is firebombed. Okay. Someone had rolled an old tire onto the family's doorstep, doused it with gasoline, and set it on fire. I'm never going to forget that day. February 3rd, 2015, I remember I was a sophomore in high school, and at 3 a.m., my sister just comes running into my room, and she just says, there's a fire in her house. We just run out of the house. We look at her front door, and it's just engulfed in flames. And I just remember staring at my house on fire, and I'm like, what happened? Once the firefighters got the blaze under control, they started asking questions. Do you know anybody who would have done this to you? Do you have any bad blood with anyone? It was just very confusing, and I had no idea. I was like, I don't know who would have done this. But there was clearly someone who simply wanted to set our house on fire. Ronald and his family started to piece it together. There was the time someone dumped trash on their lawn, or the time they found drug paraphernalia on their property, like somebody had planted it there. This was someone trying to target us. But despite the pattern of harassment, the police wouldn't call the firebombing a hate crime. Firebombings are not out of the picture. If you look at 100 years ago, there have been several cases of people trying to burn down Black property. And when you put it in that context, it's really hard to say it's not racially motivated. And then so for us not to get that support from the police made us feel like we weren't really welcome here anymore. Some of the Clinton's Manhattan Beach neighbors were extremely supportive after the incident. A woman in his mom's book club organized a candlelight vigil. Neighbors dropped off food. Many of the Clinton's neighbors wanted to believe that racial violence just doesn't happen in a California beach town. They like to think that we live in this post-racial environment where it isn't a big deal. And I think a lot of people kind of use what happened with our family and the response in the community to say that racism isn't here in Manhattan Beach because we did this for the Clinton family. Of course, people who know the history of Manhattan Beach know that what happened to the Clintons had happened before. What we're looking at right now, we're sitting at the top of the hill of the park that is called Bruce's Beach. This was sand dunes where we are. Historian Allison Rose Jefferson studies the African-American experience along the California coast. She's telling me about 1912, when the city of Manhattan Beach didn't even exist yet. When Charles and Willa Bruce bought two beachfront plots here. Back then, the area around here was just shrubs and sand dunes, 50 feet high. Today, the houses and condos and apartment blocks are piled on top of each other, all elbowing for a spot with a perfect ocean view. To buy a house down here in this beach area, you're talking five to ten million dollars. What? Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, you're talking five to ten million dollars. Downtown Manhattan Beach is almost as densely populated as Manhattan, New York. But there's one enormous wide open space right in the heart of that tangle of expensive homes. A park on three acres of rolling grass and trees with a little lifeguard building at the bottom. This portion that's over here right in front of us is where the Bruce's establishment, Bruce's Lodge, would have been. 
The Bruces lived in L.A., and they would explore the South Bay on weekends. Charles was a chef working on long-haul trains. Willa had the vision and bought the land. They started off with a beachside tent selling refreshments, and a few years later, the Bruces built a resort here. Two stories, with 30 changing rooms for swimmers, a kitchen and dining room, card games, music, dancing and a few rooms they rented to overnight guests. Once the Bruces opened up shop in the 19-teens, a handful of other Black families followed. These folks were the hosts of Black Los Angeles that would be coming down here to enjoy the beach. On holidays, news reports say that up to 3,000 Black beachgoers would come to celebrate. Bruce's Beach, as it came to be called, was a safe haven for Black people. But it was also a target for harassment from the police and arbitrary rules restricting the movement of Black beachgoers. The first day they opened, the white folks got the constables to put up ropes to keep the Black folks from using the beach, patrolling to make sure that Black folks didn't cross this beach. So that was harassment from day one. The newly incorporated town of Manhattan Beach was expanding. And according to one city official, quote, the Negro problem was going to stop our progress. They decided to get a little more active in terms of this campaign to get rid of the Black people because they felt like there was a Negro invasion. In 1924, white townspeople ignited a firebomb under the Bruce's porch. The very next night, a burning cross was erected across the street. And eight years after Charles and Willa built their resort, city officials voted unanimously to evict them. The city council issued the ordinance to say we're going to take this land for a public park. Charles and Willa moved back to L.A. The resort and the buildings were torn down. And the Black Beach paradise they created disappeared. A 1927 article in the Manhattan Beach News read, people in Los Angeles can no longer refer to this city as the Negro Beach. The Negro question has been entirely eliminated. And the land that was supposed to serve a public purpose as a park, it sat vacant for 32 years. One of the city officials who had pushed for the Bruce's eviction came clean almost 20 years later about the real purpose, getting rid of the thriving Black community. He said, quote, We had to acquire these two blocks to solve the problem. So we voted to condemn them and make a city park there. Our attorney advised the members of the council never to admit the real purpose in establishing the park. I always thought, he said, that was the meanest thing I ever did. Kavon Ward is originally from Harlem. She's a poet, an activist, a former Congressional Black Caucus fellow. When I met her on the beach, she was wearing an African wax print dress that I loved and she couldn't wait to get her feet in the sand. 
She moved to Manhattan Beach with a newborn in 2017 to be closer to extended family. I remember the first week I was here, I was at the park, Hollywog Park, and this white woman sitting next to me and didn't see my daughter because she was covered up and asked me what family I nannied for. I remember being called a terrorist for wearing a Black Panther t-shirt at the Ralphs. Manhattan Beach overall felt hostile to Kavan, like her mere presence elicited suspicion and distrust. There's just this air of pretentiousness here. And I notice that I feel that energy the closer I get to the water. Still, Kavan was looking for a way to connect to her new community. She had a new baby. So she got involved with a bunch of Facebook mom groups, which was helpful, until race came up. I started posting up about how outraged I was with the way George Floyd was murdered and how this country really doesn't value Black lives. And they deleted it. And they were like, this is not a political group. This is about motherhood. And so if you want to share posts that relates to, you know, being a mom. And then I was like, I am writing a post about being a mom, a black mom. And that could easily be my son. Did you not hear this man cry out to his mother? Kavan yearned for a space to talk freely about politics and about the way race intersected with her experience as a mother, about her pain and anger and determination that she felt as she mourned George Floyd. So she started her own online forum, an anti-racist one called Arms Around the South Bay. And it was online that Kavan learned the history of the Bruces in Manhattan Beach. She couldn't believe it. And I just remember being upset, like, I didn't know Black people actually co-founded this city because I see nothing but white people over here. I was just like, we should do something about this. Kavan started organizing events to raise awareness about Bruce's Beach. The movement, Justice for Bruce's Beach, was born. On Juneteenth, 2020, they organized a picnic in the park. It was a nice day. It was sunny. There were a lot of people surfing and two women walked up to Kavan. When I saw them, I didn't know who they were. And they came up, they're like, oh, your earrings match mine, you know? And we started talking, and I was like, what is your name? They were like, well, I'm Vivian Bruce, and I'm Patricia Bruce. They were like, thank you so much for doing this for my family. Vivian and Patricia Bruce are distant relatives of Charles and Willa. When Kavan met them, she began to wonder, what if the Bruces could get their land back? I was maybe infatuated with trying to get this land back. I would sit on my couch and I would just think almost obsessively, how can we get this land back? Later that summer, Kavan and others created a petition, staged a protest at City Hall, and organized a march to Bruce's Beach. And we had people bring out flowers and then we all with the band marched down to the water and threw the flowers and stuff in the water to pay homage to the ancestors and to the black people murdered by police. It was a very, very amazing and spiritual event. But Kavan's organizing triggered a backlash. A video clip of her talking about reparations made the rounds online and stoked some of the white community's worst fears that Black people were, quote, coming out of the woodwork with an agenda. That white people would have to pay for the racism of the past. All right, now to Southern California. 
A black family is speaking out as they get ready to reclaim oceanfront property taken from their ancestors nearly a century ago. It won't be easy to return Bruce's Beach in Manhattan Beach to the family. The story was going national, and the city decided to look into the issue. And so what happened was they decided to create this task force. The city council appointed a team to research what had happened in Manhattan Beach nearly a century ago and what to do about it. After months of sometimes fractious deliberation, the task force recommended that a new, more historically accurate plaque be installed at Bruce's Beach and that the town commissioned some artwork memorializing the history. But what really struck a nerve with many white residents was their recommendation that the city of Manhattan Beach should apologize. An anonymous group called Concerned Residents of MB took out a two-page ad in the local papers. They said that activists were, quote, trying to create a racist problem where there is none. The anonymous group called for the city to dismantle the task force and reject all of their proposals. There was this big red ad that said, we are not racist. We do not want the task force. We do not want to have an apology. That's Alison Hales, a realtor who served on the city's task force that looked into Bruce's Beach. It was shocking that someone paid for this, you know, double-sided ad. Um, Yeah, it was disgusting. Alison, a Black British woman, lived across the street from Bruce's Beach. She'd been volunteering her time for months on the task force and knew that many people did support an apology for the Bruce's. So she began fundraising and organizing to mount a response. I then actually wanted to create another ad that counteracted that ad and said, we are for an apology with names and actual names from community members. So I spearheaded that and that was successful. We got over 600 names. After the dueling ads in the local paper, Manhattan Beach seemed even more divided. This whole Bruce's Beach madness is bringing inner city troublemakers here. We want the right kind of people here in Manhattan Beach. People showed up to hours-long city council meetings. Shame on every single one of us. I support all five of the measures put forth. There's racism everywhere. Are there racists here? Yes, there are. But is Manhattan Beach racist? It's not. We are not racist. Uh, the city should not issue an apology. That will only be used against the city by the grifters who glommed onto the Bruce family looking for a big payday at the expense of Manhattan Beach's residents. Ultimately, the city council disbanded the task force and refused to issue an apology. Here's Mayor Suzanne Hadley talking to local radio. An apology is best made to the person or party, you know, directly affected and that no one um, directly affected is alive now and no one is alive now who did the offending. But the task force had unearthed an important new detail. Bruce's Beach didn't actually belong to the city. It belonged to L.A. County. Hi, I'm uh, Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And so tell me about the first time you heard about eminent domain being used to take away the Bruce's land in 1924. Well, you know, I got to be honest, Heather, I'm a little... uh, I'm a little embarrassed that I did not know about this story. 
I grew up learning to swim in the ocean about two blocks from Bruce's Beach. So it was a bit of of a shock to me. Janice Hahn is a second-generation county supervisor. Her father had been on the board for 40 years. At the time, Janice represented Manhattan Beach. But she didn't know about Bruce's Beach. She first learned about it from an article in the LA Times. When she read the article, she pulled up the plot map of the city. That's how she learned that the two parcels that had been the Bruce Resort belonged to the county, not the city of Manhattan Beach. My county lawyer said, Supervisor Hahn, what do you want to do? And I said, can we give it back? L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn had figured out that it didn't matter if the city of Manhattan Beach didn't want to apologize to the Bruce family or give their land back. The city didn't own Bruce's Beach. The county did. And that gave her an opening. The problem was there was a law on the books requiring Bruce's Beach to be used for a public purpose in perpetuity. Once the city seized it for a public purpose, it could never be privately owned. And on top of that, the law prohibited any development on the plots. So Han recruited her colleague, County Supervisor Holly Mitchell, to try and amend the law. From my perspective, it was a match made in heaven as, you know, the sole sister on the board, A. But B, also, um, because of my state legislative experience, The pair got immediate pushback from the mayor, from the city council, just about everyone else. A white friend of mine literally took me to dinner and tried to do an intervention. Like, I had lost my way. (laughs) You know, this would start a precedent. People would say, well, where are you going to draw the line? If you do this, where are you going to stop? So I said, well, before we worry about where we're going to stop, why don't we worry about how we're going to start doing the right thing? I asked Holly Mitchell why she thinks many white folks are so resistant to the idea of reparations. I think it goes back to this effort to distance oneself from that point in our history. Now, you may not have owned slaves, but you're a direct beneficiary of those who did. And I think that's a difficult thing for people to hear, embrace, accept, and move forward. Despite the resistance in Manhattan Beach to the idea of apologizing to the Bruces, Supervisor Hahn felt that it was the right thing to do. And, you know, when I first met the Bruces, right, I, that was the first thing I did was, you know, I apologized to them. What did it feel like when you apologized? It felt good because I told you, I'm, in, I'm embarrassed about this. I was embarrassed that how did I grow up and how did I, even as an adult, not know this story? How did I ignore it, missed it? So it felt good for me to apologize for myself. I can't apologize for, you know, the city of Manhattan Beach, but I could certainly apologize for myself, and it felt good. Hahn and Mitchell worked with state legislators on a bill that would make it legal for the county to transfer the land back to the Bruce family. In September 2021, Governor Gavin Newsom signed it into law. 
Well, as governor of California, let me do what apparently Manhattan Beach is unwilling to do, and I want to apologize to the Bruce family. That was done to them a century ago. This was a major milestone, the first known case in U.S. history where a government returned land to the descendants of a Black family. The use of eminent domain to take Black land was a widespread practice in the U.S. throughout the 20th century. The Bruces were just one of the earlier cases. And because we're talking about property, accrued wealth, the impact grows over time. The seizure of the Bruce's land devastated them financially. They used most of the money they'd made to fight the eminent domain case. What would the Bruce family's situation look like today if their wealth had been allowed to compound over generations? What would our country look like without the mass theft of Black wealth? Today, on average, a white high school dropout is wealthier than a Black college graduate. Wealth is how history shows up in your wallet. The victory at Bruce's Beach set a precedent. It revealed that there is a pathway for reparations. But here's the thing. Supervisor Hahn strongly believes that the decision to give the land back not only benefits the Bruce family, but the entire city of Manhattan Beach. I think we gave Manhattan Beach a gift. We gave them a gift that if they embrace it, they can say, we're not the Manhattan Beach that we were 100 years ago. We are better than that. And here's proof. Still, a few weeks after the bill was signed, the land transfer was halted in its tracks. A white resident from nearby Palos Verdes filed a lawsuit against the county, quibbling with some technicalities of the case. But his main argument was that giving public property to a private family was bad for the public, taking public resources away. I wanted to hear from him, so I tried to meet him. But Joseph Ryan wouldn't speak to me. As I walked up to his door, I could see his breathtaking views of the ocean. Unobstructed by the two plots of beachfront property 10 miles away that he didn't want returned to the Bruces. But he doesn't want the Bruces to have that amazing view. Joe Ryan's lawsuit gets at the fear at the heart of this story. It's the same fear expressed by the city council that wouldn't apologize, and the residents of Manhattan Beach at the city meetings, and the friend who took Janice Hahn to dinner, warning her not to start a dangerous precedent. It's the fear that providing justice to Black people will harm white people. Joe Ryan cited the California Supreme Court, which says that the state can't transfer public property unless it serves, quote, a direct and substantial public purpose. He argued that giving the land back didn't do that. Here's what the court ruled. Manhattan Beach, the court said, committed a grievous act of racial discrimination to eliminate the Bruce's presence and the presence of their Black patrons under the pretense of building a park. The court wrote that giving the land back righted a government wrong, that it strengthened governmental integrity and accountability, 
the court wrote that correcting racist wrongs fosters trust and respect in government, that addressing past acts of discrimination and preventing them in the future benefits the whole community and its general welfare. The public purpose served by State Bill 796 is direct and substantial, the court wrote. It was a very emotional day standing on the beach. That's County Supervisor Holly Mitchell. In fact, I had to go kind of take a walk and just look out at the water and just say, I'm going I'm to be at one. Willa and Charles, we did this. I think about all the very different people that it took to get here, to correct this wrong. It took Kavon Ward, a mom in a new city who noticed an injustice and spoke out. Just a regular person who wasn't afraid to say something, even if it wasn't popular. It took a local politician in Janice Hahn, who was in a position of power to address the injustice and actually did. She's a white woman who pushed through legislation to make the land return legal and fielded resistance from her neighbors and friends. It took Holly Mitchell, who worked hand in hand with Janice Hahn and faced skepticism from all sides. A black woman, who offered grace and knowledge to those still learning how to make things right. And when I spoke to all of them, to the people who made this improbable victory come true, I saw how it took working together in good faith, even if they were figuring things out as they went along. Here's Holly Mitchell. You know, I appreciated Janice's honesty about not knowing the history And so I was impressed that she was willing to say, I didn't know about it, but how deeply personal she took it and leaned in hard. What I appreciated about this experience was her willingness to tell that truth. And Janice Hahn. Holly, I think what I appreciate about you is, you know, you came to this certainly with more knowledge than I did, but you know, you're know you non-judgmental. You met me where I was and said, let's hold hands and do this together. This coalition of people gave everyone in California a gift. The gift of knowing that if your government wrongs you, no matter how much time passes, it can make things right if the people demand it of knowing that our government can make amends when it has harmed its people. No matter the complexity, no matter the resistance, no matter the improbability. If we hold it to account, our government can do right by us. Ever since that first Juneteenth picnic, Kavan says it's been like night and day, the way folks are coming out to Bruce's Beach Park. I see so many Black people. And it makes me feel good because I don't really see that many Black people in these communities. And so when I see them having sound baths up there and, you know, running around with their kids and playing basketball and just taking up space, I'm like, thank you. We did that, right? Black people know about this beach and they can be here and take pride in it and not feel uncomfortable because they can say it was ours anyway. Over the last year, there's been a visible increase in Black folks using the park for family events, birthday parties, picnics. The Bruce family now officially owns the land, though for now they're leasing it back to the county. Their story has inspired other Black business owners, like Antoinette, 
an interior designer who set up shop in Manhattan Beach after learning the Bruce's story. A Black family, specifically a Black woman, having a, a resort of sorts on the beach, you know, it just spoke to me in so many ways. I was really pushed to want to set roots here. Her friend Lenora has a successful wine shop and an awesome restaurant called Barsha. I think there's just so much focus on it making the white folks in the neighborhood feel like they were the ones that were racist. They were the ones from 100 years ago. That's not what we're trying to say. You know, what we're trying to say is acknowledge the past to let it make a difference in your forward movements. And then let's unify together. Standing with my feet in the sand at the very edge of this country, looking out over the Pacific, I can't stop thinking about apologies. It was an official act of the government of Manhattan Beach to take the Bruce's land, just as slavery and discrimination were official government acts. Who else but the government can apologize? And when our governments do, That doesn't mean that every citizen today is guilty for the past. It means citizens today support an official recognition that those acts were wrong. And reparations? Financial compensation from the government for harms committed by that government? I don't see that as a zero-sum, taking something away from one group and giving it to the other. I see reparations as seed capital for the nation we're becoming. (laughs) The thing that's so funny is this story is about people wanting to have fun, to enjoy the beach, to swim together. Here's David Milana again, the surfer from Color the Water. We're gonna take this and build ourselves up to a place of joyful, defiant celebration. And in that celebration is power. And in that power, there's equity. We just want to be able to celebrate and and enjoy this with everyone. And that's what we hope for. Next time on The Some of Us, I go back to where it all started for me. So what I've learned about podcasts is that high sort of animation and emotion... Are welcome. Are welcome. All right. There you go. It's not a webinar. No, it's not a webinar. (laughs) For our final episode, I visit someone who shaped my life and work Someone who helps me make sense of this journey and all the people I met along the way. You lived in those stories. You connected deeply with other human beings. It is transformational. Something happens in the heart that can never be reversed. And it's not only my heart that's been changed. I feel like our country's core is transforming too. This journey showed me the secret ingredients to solidarity in America. From Kansas City to Memphis, everyday people are coming together despite their differences. On our next episode. 
from Higher Ground, this is The Sum of Us, created and hosted by me, Heather McGee, and produced by Futuro Studios. Our producers are Kasim Shepard, Ryan Kailoth, Emil Sequiros, Joaquin Cutler, and Juan Diego Ramirez, with help from Liliana Ruiz, Sophia Lowe, Susanna Kemp, and Alyssa Vladimir. Our senior producers are Nicole Rothwell, Jeannie Montalvo, and Fernanda Echavri. We're edited by Sandy Ratley and Maria Garcia. Executive produced for Futuro by Marlon Bishop. Mixing by Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. With help from JJ Carabin and Gabriela Baez. Recorded at the Bridge Studio in Brooklyn, New York by Jurash Jovanovic and Greg Talk. Research by Lynn Cantor and Carolyn Lipka. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Our original music and theme song is by The Sacred Souls. Join us for the next episode of The Sum of Us, a podcast in search of hope and solidarity.